Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Broadcasting live on the Mix Radio Network. You're listening to Casey Ryan on the cutting room floor. All right, how you doing, everybody? Casey Ryan here again for another episode of the Cutting Room Floor, a little podcast that I show that I started to showcase any entertainers and creative types from all walks. I like to say, if you've got a story to tell or a project to sell, uh, then I want to hear from you. The easiest way to get a hold of me is on Twitter. You can ask anybody that knows me. I'm on there all the time at Cutting Room MRB, uh, or you can hit me up on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Cutting Room MRB. Uh, if you want to get, uh, if you want to come on the show, I'm booking guests. I'm, uh, you know, booking in from, uh, you know, October onwards kind of thing. If you want to have something that you want to talk about, let me know. I'm happy to get uh, to as many people as I possibly can. Or if you want me to tweet out some links for you, I'm happy to do that as well. Uh, quick thank you as we do at the top of every episode to the wolf who acts as my announcer. You can listen to him and his dear wife Susan right here on the Mix Radio Network every Friday night from eight o'clock until midnight on the Life from the Morgue show. Uh, always have fun gate crashing that. Uh, uh, comedy and reality and general nonsense. I never know what I'm going to talk about there, so I, I have a chance to sort of unwind and just laugh a little bit. Uh, also to Michael Cardillo, who wrote my opener there, a free gratitude for nothing, and that's a cool extra layer to the show. Uh, so today, I, I like talking to documentary filmmakers. This is one thing that, that I've kind of discovered about myself over the course of the eight years in doing this, this show. That, that There's a lot of really, really cool stories out there. And to, for my money, um, you know, some of the best storytelling that is out there is actually based on, on live events and, and things that have happened. Uh, and they don't get much bigger in, in terms of uh, a mark on society and popular culture and, and the environment, quite frankly, than the subject matter for what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, Philip Grossman is my guest. He's based out of Atlanta, though he, he does pride himself on the fact that he, he says his unofficial home is in the airport because he, he travels so much. Um, he's the director of Enterprise Solution Architecture for Image Communications, which is a video infrastructure systems firm. Uh, but his real passion lies in cinematography and photography. Um, and to that extent, uh, he's become sort of a, a subject matter expert, if you will. And I'm going to let him get into this a little bit more. Having made 11 trips to the site of the Chernobyl disaster in the Ukraine, uh, which at the time it happened was part of the Soviet Union. Uh, 11 trips over there. I, I can't believe this. And, um, you know, for those of you not in the know, it was when a, uh, a nuclear reactor uh, in the Soviet Union, then the Soviet Union broke down. Uh, one of the most catastrophic 
environmental disasters in the history of the world and, and uh, uh, you know the impact of it is still being felt to this day even though this was over 30 years ago. Um, he's also going to be hosting a, uh, a special on the Science Channel uh, this coming Thursday at 9 o'clock so if you have a chance to, uh, to watch that I'm going to see if I get that uh, and I'll certainly be watching um, called Mysteries of the Abandoned Chernobyl's Deadly Secrets and here today to talk about it is the filmmaker himself Philip Grossman so uh, it's always great to have new people on the show so without further ado the cutting room floor proudly welcomes for the first time uh, uh, filmmaker Philip Grossman uh, Philip how are you? Oh, good. Thank, thanks for having me. I want to make one correction. I've made 10 trips, although my 11th trip is planned for next spring. I just see, keep wanting to go back. There, there's so much there uh, from an engineering perspective that I still feel like I, I don't know all the answers. Okay. Okay. That, that's, uh, yeah, I was just going to ask you, my first question is a bit of an icebreaker. Apart from that, did I get your bio information right? Or yeah. Yep. 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 And I don't know why everybody always says image, but um, it's Imagine Communications, a uh, fantastic firm. They, they are, have been uh, wonderful to work for because they've given me the opportunity to, to take the time to go and work on this, you know, as I say, passion project. Okay, and, and, and you know what? It's, it's funny that you mentioned that. That was a bit of a slip of the tongue on my part because I did have Imagine uh, in my uh, in my notes here. So Imagine communication. No, everybody does it. I don't know why. <laughs> no problem. So, uh, so I, I guess I'm going to ask sort of a you know a grassroots kind of question, right? Uh, how did you first? be you know how were you first brought the project of, of going to chernobyl to to take pictures i guess you know what what was the the, the genesis of you're actually having to go over there i was bored and i was out of beer uh no <laughs> uh, i actually it's you know reason as uh, any to go to the ukraine I, I, exactly um in 2011 i had uh, sort of you know, it, my my wife jokes that it was my midlife crisis. I was a, I just turned forty, um, and was sort of uh, uh, fed up with uh, or tired of, I guess is a better word, uh, with corporate America. And I had been a cinematographer, a photographer for a long time, sort of as a as a hobby. Um, and she said, you know, take a year off, go and focus on your passion. So I started, uh, you know, showing my work to, to galleries and museums, uh, and I got the same feedback. You know, your stuff is really wonderful, technically very good, um, but there's, there's no cohesive story. So I sort of put my engineering hat on, my background's in civil engineering, um, and said, okay, I want to do a cohesive story. What should that be? And at that time, it, it had happened to be the 25th anniversary of the Chernobyl accident. Um, I, I grew up near uh, Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania. I lived through that. I was in third grade, Mrs. Murray's class. I remember, you know, like it was yesterday when it happened. Um, and my family's history, the last place that we lived or stayed before coming to the States uh, at the turn of the century was in the Ukraine in, in a town called Ruzhin. And so all these things sort of all came together. So I said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to try and go there. And in 2011, it was, it was uh, a, not an easy task to try and get access. Uh, and I jokingly said, I, I met some dude on the internet, um, who had been there once or twice before, uh, told him I, you know, I was going to go. It was, I had found a company that supposedly had public tours, was going to go for a day. That's all I could do. And, um, he said, day's not long enough. Uh, so he said he was going back in November. He had gotten permission, um, for four days and you know, if I wanted to go to wire him money, you know, so the first thing I'm thinking is, okay, I'm going to wire some guy I don't know money, but it was to a, a legitimate bank. It wasn't Western union. And, you know, 
picked up my stuff through caution to the wind and went there, um, thinking it was a once in a lifetime opportunity. It was just a, a, an amazing sobering experience. And on that particular trip managed to gain access to the control room of reactor number four. Um, not thinking that I would ever go back. And three months later, this individual called me back who's since become a very good friend of mine and says, I'm going back. Do you want to go? I said, sure, but only if we go longer. And from that day forward, just seemed to go back every eight to 12 months, roughly, um, and, and knew there was a story there, but didn't necessarily want to just tell the, the basic story of what had happened. I think right, that has right. been fairly well documented um, from an engineering perspective. It was more about the people, the culture, those kind of things, and sort of what had happened between 2011 and, and, and um, the, the, the 30th anniversary in 2016, and it just sort of has grown into, you know, I jokingly say it's from, you know, from passion project to prime time in the last two years, uh, just through some happenstance, I, I met a great production company who, uh, Ping Pong Productions out of Los Angeles, who uh, really embraced the, the idea of the story um, and then turned to me and said, do, do, do you want to do a television show about this? And I said, sure, why not? Um, and sort of the rest is history. And, you know, we're going to go on air on uh, the 31st of, of August, 9 p.m. Okay, so I'm going to ask you about that a little bit later. But, sure. But, but uh, you know, there, you touched on a couple of different things here that, that I, that I kind of like to pick up on. First of all, uh, you know, I, I've noticed in your blog and in a, a couple of the sample videos that you had up on your website there that I had a chance to take a look at. Uh, that there's, uh, you know, I'm, uh, one of my things is vocabulary. I like to pick up on that. And uh, I, I notice that you keep making reference to the zone. Yes, right? yes. So um, for the uninitiated, you know, taxonomically speaking, what is the zone and, and what's the significance of that term? Sure, sure. So the zone is, is, is sometimes referred to as the zone of alienation or the zone of exclusion, depending on how it's translated from Russian or Ukrainian. At the time of the accident, um, they, they started evacuating an area. Initially, it was about 10 kilometers and grew to 15 kilometers. And eventually, it's 30 kilometers from the center of the re reactor due to the contamination. So about 192 villages uh, were evacuated from both Belarus and from the Ukrainian side. Chernobyl is about 15 kilometers or seven and a half miles or so from the border of Belarus. And that area is now known as the zone of exclusion. And for uh, the American listeners, um, I always say I refer to it it's this basically it's the size of rhode island uh that, that no big. one is wow yeah it's large um and most people don't realize that uh um you know no one permanently lives there or no one's legally permanently uh, able to live there there are people who who work in the zone uh there you know over the last five years they've been constructing the new what they call sarcophagus and we can talk about that um but there are people who move back after the accident resettlers and at one time i think there was upwards of 1200 there's now less than several dozen uh who, who still live in there but uh and, and one of the things that people don't realize is that it's not never really brought up 70 percent of the radioactive fallout actually landed in the in the country of belarus that bordered the reactor complex right right now now uh you mentioned that that there's actually people that are going back and working in there like uh, i i guess in what capacity like uh... yeah so the reactor complex um so it, it the accident happened april 26 1986 there were four reactors at the time operational there were two more under construction at the time of the accident reactor four is the one that exploded 
reactors one through three were shut down during that time period. Within six months and finishing the sarcophagus, the, the original cover, they um, uh, had to uh, start those reactors back up again because they needed – the Chernobyl complex at the time uh, provided – I think it was about uh, 15%, 10 to 15% of all of the power – for the for the country of Ukraine, um, and so they needed the power. So the those reactors actually continued operating until the last one shutting down in December fifteenth, or on December fifteenth in the year two thousand. So fourteen years after the accident, was still generating power. Since then, there the village of Chernobyl, which is about again fifteen kilometers from the reactor, um, there are scientists and engineers who obviously have been studying the cleanup. Um, and then the construction of this new sarcophagus, this new dome that was just completed or will be officially completed uh, this spring, uh, covers the reactor to seal in all the radioactive material and, and dust. Um, and there were, you know, a thousand workers or so, 1,500 workers that would come in. They would work for two weeks. They'd leave for two weeks. They'd work for two weeks, leave for two weeks. They'd do that for six months. Then they had to take six months off. They could do that again. They could do it for a, a total of two years. So you had those workers. Plus you had all the people who had to support those workers, the, the people who cooked, the people who cleaned, who ran the little shop. Um, so you would have on a daily basis about 2,000 people in the zone, 1,500 working on a daily basis. The reactors are now obviously all shut down, but they're now starting the um, uh, uh, decommissioning process, which okay. in this case will probably take about 30 years to totally decommission the reactors, remove all the radioactive waste, all the radioactive material, um, and completely seal in uh, the complex. Now, now I mean, you know, when I hear the word sarcophagus, I, I think of you know like mummification in in ancient Egypt and the pyramids and things like this. But you know, basically, it sounds like they're applying the same process to a whole building or to a whole compound. Is this sure, sure. So reactor number four. Um, it, 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 one of the unique things about that type of reactor is called an RBMK one thousand. Is that because of its size? Uh, it didn't have an, a secondary containment facility, so effectively the reactor um, was open to or covered by a large steel building that exploded, um, and so you had this gaping hole in the ground with you know all of the radioactive material referred to as radioactive lava because it was burning so hot. It was a graphite cord uh, reactor. Um, during the the initial three to five days after the uh, accident, they were actually dropping concrete and boron and water on top of it to try and stop this nuclear reaction. It was it was continuing, um, and so eventually they got it somewhat under control, if you could consider that. And then they had to cover that entire building because it was just you know leaking radioactive material into the atmosphere. Uh, on day three, I remember reading a report that a um, a colonel in the Air Force had gone up in a helicopter. He's about 300 meters above the ground. And the air temperature was still several hundred, it was 120 or 140 degrees Celsius at, you know, 300 meters above the ground. So much heat coming off. And so they built this original, it was actually referred to as the object shelter, um, but got nicknamed the sarcophagus because it did entomb the entire building and, and what was left of the reactor core and material. That was designed to last about 20 to 30 years, 30 years being uh, April 26th of this past year of 2016. Uh, in 2009, they began the process, or actually earlier, they began the process of a, a, a competition for this new 
referred to as the safe confinement uh, uh, center, the new sarcophagus. Uh, it was the construction was completed uh, and it was moved into place this past November. Um, and now it'll, it'll take another roughly half a year to completely entomb the, this existing sarcophagus. Uh, and then they'll begin the process of dismantling the original one and uh, removing all the radioactive material. There's still 20 tons of plutonium and radioactive material inside of that building. So I, I got to ask you this, all right? Uh, um, you, you mentioned to me that, that you've been 10 times. You're planning on an 11th, right? Correct. Uh, what to you is so compelling about this place that that... that you know, you felt the drive to go back as many times as you have, right? I, I, I guess, you know, you know, what to you is the interest there? What, what motivates you to, to have done this much research on it? So part of it was it started off as, as uh, I'm an engineer by by schooling, a uh, civil architectural engineer. Um, and my first job out of college was was dealing in what they called proper condition evaluations, due diligence, basically like going to commercial structures, figure out the condition, figure out if something had gone wrong, why it went, why it had gone wrong. So I've always been fascinated by that. Um, and there was no greater engineering disaster in the world, I think, than Chernobyl. And so for me, it was sort of, Going to this, uh, um, you know, abandoned city of Pripyat, you know, trying to figure out what the buildings were, trying to understand um, what caused the accident. I've read the IAE reports. Um, you know, I've read things the CIA had said, things that there that the Soviet government had said. I've talked to people, and it's sort of this. This, it's to me, it's a, it's a large puzzle. Right. that I'm trying to figure out. And I've always sort of been driven by the unknown. Um, and for me, it's it's you you can't make an informed decision without information. So you have to have information. And so it's that constant drive. And, you know, I'll hear stories. I'll go back. I'll talk to locals and I'll hear one story. Then I'll go back and I'll hear a, another completely different story. And we've, we've heard the story. There's a story of, of two engineers and a and a um, assistant that dove into the reactor pool knowing that they would die. But if they did not dive in and drain and find this valve that was stuck and drain the water, that uh, there, there could have been potentially a secondary explosion, what they call nuclear incursion, that would have been three uh, 10 times what the current explosion was and would have made Western Europe uninhabitable. And I've heard this story over and over again. And finally, through meeting different people, meeting different people there, I found that the, the story's not exactly what, what, what it was said. Um, the, but all three, the, actually one of the individuals has passed away, but it, it was of natural causes. Um, and it's sort of that for me, trying to figure out what this puzzle is. It's not just a simple engineering story. It's not just a simple you know, geopolitical story. It's, you know, there was so much more to it. Um, and then there's just a sort, you know, from a, uh, visual perspective, there's just a certain beauty of nature taking over. And I, and I, it's something I've tried to do in, in both my photography and cinematography. And, you know, as we talk about documentary documentaries and documentarians, I, every documentary is biased. It's not a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It just is. You go in with a perspective that you're trying to tell a story and I don't fault anybody for doing it. It's a, they're usually passion projects. I coming from an engineering background, always wanted to kind of let the story find me and try and present it as, as unbiased as I can. I have a perspective, a position, and I try not to let that sway it, but I know it does. And so what I want people to, to be able to do is to see the footage, see the images, and, and, and half, half the people go, oh my God, look what man did to the planet. 
and have another half of the people going, oh, my God, look what the planet has been able to recover from what man did. Um, and so that's that's sort of that telling, that visual telling story. And also it's, you know, you know I always joked with my father because I was a, a math and science person, not a, a history person. And he kept – my dad's a big history buff. And, and he says, you got to learn this history. And I joke, eh, it will just come around again. I'll learn it the second time around. History repeats. And this is something historically we don't want to repeat. Okay, so th I think this is as uh, good a spot as any, uh, Philip. What we're going to do is we're going to take my mid-show break here. Uh, sure. I'm going to ask you to please mute up. I'm going to do a, uh, a commercial for the morgue. Uh, Jason Hadley is going to come in here with the Hollywood Rock and Wrap-Up for the week. Uh, and uh, I get to pick a piece of music, so I'm going to play a piece by uh, Burton Cummings. Uh, this is going to be Your Backyard, and then we're going to be uh, back with uh, Philip Grossman for a few more minutes. So, Philip, could you just mute up there, and we'll be back in about sure. five minutes. Right? Certainly. All right. It's the Hollywood Rock and Wrap Up with your host, Jason Hadley. Susan Sarandon joined protesters supporting Colin Kaepernick outside of NFL headquarters, tweeting to fans that she stands with Colin. However, at 70 years old, more specifically, she stands with the assistance of Colin. A party thrown at the home of ex-Bush frontman Gavin Rosdale received noise complaints and a visit from police at only 10 o'clock at night. Divorced and not much of a career since 2010, it was the first time cops received a noise complaint that was about the lack of. With her newest album, Rainbow, debuting at number one on the Billboard Top 100, Kesha's well on her way to a comeback which prior to shedding her bad girl image would have been all over her front instead. Happy birthday to Rupert Grint. In the event the red-headed Harry Potter actor drinks himself unconscious, he's to be carried home, you guessed it, gingerly. And that's the Hollywood Rockin' Wrap-Up. Follow us on Twitter at Rockin' Wrap-Up.
Martin Cummings, uh, lead singer of the Guess Who, on a solo piece called Your Backyard. That's one of those songs I play when I'm, uh, you know, want to be in a good mood before I start my show. It's got one of those earworm things. I like that one. Uh, so we're back with Philip Grossman here. Uh, we're talking about uh, a documentary that he's got, that, uh, and a special he's got set to, uh, to bow on the Science Channel this coming Thursday at 9 o'clock. Uh, again, that's called Mysteries of the Abandoned Chernobyl's Deadly Secrets. Uh, Philip, I, I gotta ask you this. I, you know, I mean, you must be asked this all the time. But, but uh, I mean, going going to a place like that, do you, do you, is there any concern for your own safety or health? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, my my father is a is a retired surgeon, so I get a, an earful from him, and my best friends are radiologists, so I hear from them. But you know, radiation is really a a, a truly misunderstood. Uh, phenomena in science, um, and part of this project has has enabled me to truly understand it. I, you know, for me, I always want to seek out answers. Uh, I was that little kid bouncing up and down in the back seat, going, "But why, Dad? But why?" And I wanted to know the answers to the point that during this process, I was living in Colorado at the time, and Colorado School of Mines was is there. So I I called up or I looked up to see if they had a nuclear engineering program, and they did, and I called up one of the professors and said, hey, can I buy you dinner and sit down for a couple hours and just ask you a lot of questions because there are just things that that don't quite have all the pieces, but they're not connecting. The dots aren't connecting. And part of that was learning about radiation and and the dangers of it and and how to safeguard yourself. Um, the, The interesting factoid is the village of Chernobyl, the background radiation, it's about the same as it is here in Atlanta. In fact, Denver has a higher background radiation level, partially because there's a lot of granite in Denver, and it's uh, you know a mile above sea level. Uh, I've I've been you know people will always joke and say, well, are you going to go to Fukushima next? Well, I've been to Fukushima, um, and the time there, I actually got uh, more exposure to radiation on the flight over and back than I did actually on the ground. And it's something I, I measure. It is it is a concern. There are some extremely radioactive areas. Um, in the Chernobyl zone, and you 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 take precautions. Well, yeah, I, I saw you. You know, all suited up with the uh, you know the masks and the uh, you know the rubber suits and the whole bit, right? That, uh, yep. Yeah, yeah some <laughs> some of the places, and one of the most dangerous parts of radiation is it's 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 anything that's radioactive dust that's contaminated right. and breathing that into your lungs because you have there's no protection between your cell and that radioactive that ionizing uh, radiation beta uh, or alpha particle, and that's what it does is it it's a high energy damages the chromosomes in in your cell. Um, and so breathing stuff in is the most dangerous. So, you know, when, when I'm in an enclosed space or there's a lot of dust, most definitely will always wear a respirator. Now, you mentioned that, that when you were setting out to do this, that you didn't want to do a typical, you know, news coverage piece, right? That, that, Correct. That a lot of that had been done before, you know, at infinity, right? That, that you really wanted to focus on some people stories. Mm-hmm. So, uh, let's talk about that for a few minutes. So what kinds of research did you do and, and how did you start to network and, and gather stories for this? And, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about that process. Sure. So uh, one of the things is, you know, my, my Russian is next to non-existent. I did take Russian lessons to, you know, be able to uh, to communicate a little bit. And it's, you, you would meet locals uh, who spoke a little bit of English, um, who would know somebody who spoke no English. You'd have this communication. And we had the opportunity to go and, and visit some of the resettlers. Uh, one day we, were, we just happened to be in, in the city of Pripyat, 
which was about 50,000 people at the time of the accident um, and was evacuated all 50,000 people in about three hours. Um, and in 2014, I believe it was 15, we were in the, in the city um, and ran into a gentleman who was there, you know, sort of visiting who happened to have been an ambulance driver the night of the accident. Um, and so, you know, through just, you know, it was his broken Russian, broken English, you know, convinced him to, to talk with us. And so he actually walked us through the hospital, uh, showed us where he had br brought the, um, uh, uh, first responders showed us the areas where he had been scrubbed down, uh, told us how he had gotten several shots of vodka to clean the system as he was instructed. Um, and it's sort of just through that, you know, getting to know people. And that's part of wanting to spend so much time there is that, um, Ukrainian culture still seems to have, uh, at least in, in Pripyat or excuse me, in Chernobyl and, and the outer, uh, outside of, uh, say, um, Kiev, a major city still seems to have that, uh, sort of former Soviet socialist republic um, feeling where people are very cautious of strangers. Um, and so you have to spend time there with the people uh, to get to know them, to get them to trust you, to, to open up, to tell you stories. Um, and then they will tell you, oh, you should meet this person or you should meet that person. Um, so that, that was part of the, the, the experience of trying to get there and spend as much time with the, the people who were impacted by it. Um, and then seeking out, like I said, some of these stories that I've heard and there's some interesting things that will be in the show that, even, you know, having been there 10 times that even I learned on this last trip there, uh, in filming the show that, uh, uh I think will be a little bit surprising to some people. Well, and I mean, you mentioned that, that you know not only for the uh, the disaster itself, but but geopolitically. I mean, that's you know kind of an interesting place to be, right? That that I mean, they're still new to a lot of things, and and uh, I mean, I I remember feeling similar feelings when I I traveled to St. Petersburg. That that uh, you know this was a country that was just starting to get used to the freedoms of of democracy, but. Uh, you know, there was a lot of holdovers there, and you could tell that, that mm. people weren't really quite sure how to react to certain things. Yeah, and it's it's very interesting to see how two adjoining countries who went through the same disaster, were part of the Soviet Socialist Republics, have sort of dealt with this. So uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, have a, a solo exhibition at the United Nations for the 30th anniversary. Wow. Uh, and, and during that, I met Helen Clark, the former prime minister of, of uh, New Zealand, and then also um, uh, Minister, uh, for, minister of Foreign Affairs Mackay uh, for Belarus. As I mentioned, Belarus has 70% of the fallout actually in it in Belarus. And I we'd been trying to gain access to their uh, what they call their zone of exclusion, which is part of the entire zone when I refer to the size. Um and he, he helped me get, uh, he and his, and his team and the ministry's team helped me get access and, and gave me just an amazing uh, four or five days of exposure within their country uh, and how they've taken care of it. Um, and the difference is, is rather stark. In, in uh, Ukraine, it seems to be cover up. Don't want to talk about it, very quiet. Right. 
in in Belarus because they they do not have a lot of natural resources. They were an agrarian society, a farming society. They were depended on farming, um, and so they've built you know amazing universities that have done research on how to farm in highly radioactive material and how to treat radioactive material. Um, it's sort of, uh, I, I was lucky enough to go to, uh, some, uh, middle schools and kindergartens while I was there, uh, and, and spoke with the students and it's, it's sort of a part of a way of life for them is testing because of the radiation. Um, you know, this, this, this whole project is sort of, you know, I, I'm blessed that I've been able to, to meet and have access to some of these people in, in high ranking positions and be able to ask and, and experience some of these things. And it really has made this a very big picture story to the point where I'm also now working on a, another piece about Belarus and, and how it's gone from, you know, out of the, 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 the shadow of the uh, accident and out of the shadow of communism to, you know, really trying to become uh, a, a member state of the world uh, with its its uh, agriculture. Um, it's building us. It built a, a very large solar plant. It's actually building its first nuclear power plant. Um, that that they've embraced uh, what had happened and learned from it. Uh, they have a wonderful uh, medical facility there where anybody who was involved. They refer to them as liquidators, people who came to help with the cleanup, right. uh, who get free medical care the rest of their life at this uh, amazing facility. And, uh, and I had the opportunity to go and tour and actually. To, to film a surgery while I was there. It was just, uh, I can't say enough about the hospitality of, of the, the, the Belarusian government and, and the people there. And it's very, in stark contrast to dealing with the Ukrainian side, um, that it was a little more difficult for access. Um, and it's not a, a good, bad, or indifferent. It's just, it's the way it is. And I've always found that kind of amazing how two countries can border one another and, and be very, very different and, and have somewhat different languages. Well, I mean, to a certain extent, it, I mean, that, that uh, makes up for all the more compelling story, right? That, And I, I was going to ask you whether you thought about doing a, uh, a sister companion piece, uh, you know, from the other side of that border. Uh, so. Yeah, so I'm, I'm working on it. It's, it's just a matter of finding time. There, there, you know, I joke that this was the filming in Chernobyl for me was sort of my masters in cinematography. I got to learn so much because as, as you as you do this kind of work, you really have to shoot and then review what you did, figure out what you like, what you didn't like, how did you do the stuff you like, reshoot, see if you can, you know, get that same feeling. You know, it's sort of that you, you have to do something 10,000 times before you're an expert at it, I guess is the saying. Um, and I had the opportunity to go back each time and, you know, I'm a, I'm a geek at heart. I love the technology of cameras. And, you know, I think on one trip I had six different camera types with me. And now and I was going to ask you, uh, you know, about the role that that that, uh, that drones have played for you in terms of your photography. Yeah, so so one of the, on the first trip I ever made there, we got a, a helicopter flight, two thousand and eleven, okay. and it was just an, an it was overcast. Um, pretty sure the pilot was probably drunk, although I can't say for sure. Uh, but it gave you a completely different perspective. And for me, drones, um, and this was the the early days of, of drones, you know, where you GPS was was limited. Uh, you know, the gimbal systems were were um, uh, driven by belts. Uh, so they weren't that great. Uh, so the second trip I said, you know, I'm going to take a drone because I, the helicopter can only fly so close and it's limited in its altitude. So I want to take a drone. So first time in 2013 took a drone and just gives a, a completely different perspective of the area, a lot, partially because it's obviously overgrown 30 years. No man has been there. 
you know, no people have been living there. Nature and its and its fury has taken over, and the the drone gives you this different feel, this this broad landscape. You know how big and massive this thing is, from the cooling towers to the complex to the city of Pripyat, and and to me, drones are um, like Tabasco. Uh, you don't put Tabasco in everything you eat. You you put it in things here, there to kind of kick things up to get you you know uh, a little bit of extra flavor. And that's sort of what the drone for me is. Drone sometimes like, unless you're doing a complete drone video and everything is shot from a drone, and they they do have their place. And there's some of them I've seen some really amazing stuff. But from what for me, it's a storytelling device. Um, and I, and it needs to fit in between where a jib fits and where a helicopter fits. Um, and it's, it's used as a storytelling device, just like any camera, any lens. Um, you know, I, like I said, I've been shooting 4k since, you know, 2012, 2011. Um, it's, it's a storytelling device. Lenses are storytelling devices. Uh, don't let the technology drive the story. Let the story drive the story and let technology help you tell that story. Now, I, I got to tell you, I'm looking, uh, I have your website up here, Exploring the Zone, and uh, if you want to take a look at this, uh, I, I would strongly recommend anybody who's got an interest in science, and I'm certainly going to be sending this to my best friend and his father, both of whom were uh, geography teachers, um, that, you know, I'm looking through your photo gallery here, this one's from 2013, uh, you've really managed to tap into the eerie elegance of this place, I <laughs> Yeah, well, thank you, thank you. There, there's, and I, I feel bad because I haven't really updated uh, the site in a couple of years now, or a year or so. I've been so busy with with getting ready for the show and and everything else. But I have two, th well over twenty thousand images now, um, and probably about sixty to seventy hours of material, most of it in four K. And again, that's that's part of the storytelling is to. Um, you know, you, my, my wife hates when I tell the story, but for me, it's sort of, you know, I love Caesar Milan and the dog whisperer. Uh, you know, my wife and I are big, you know, uh, um, we rescue dogs. We have two of our own big dogs. We foster lots of dogs. And when you're teaching a dog, one of the things they tell you to do is, is don't pull directly back on its collar because that's the strongest point of the dog. You want to pull sideways. You want to set them off balance because they're going to listen and pay attention. Right. And I started thinking about that, you know, and it's really about psychology. It's not dog psychology specific, but psychology in general. And if you think about it, if you're off balance, if you're uncomfortable, you have a tendency to pay attention. And so part of the goal is to get that those photos to be at a different angle, you know, uh, you know, cat, like you said, capture that eeriness to get people to really get engaged with the photo. Uh, my goal at the end of the day is, is I want people to have a reaction to the photos. Hopefully it's a, a, a positive reaction that they like what they see, you know, for whatever reason, as opposed to, you know, being a negative reaction, but it, I want a reaction. Um, I think that's a goal of most artists is to, to, to try and get, to, to gain a reaction from, uh, the, the audience. No, and what, you know, the, what, what I would classify these is, is hauntingly beautiful. I, I guess if that's an appropriate description, uh, you know, to use an oxymoron, but, but, uh, I mean, you really managed to, to, to capture the feel of the place, and I can almost hear the wind blowing in my ears as I, as I look at some of these. Well, thank you, thank you. Um, so, Philip, we're we, um, running short on time here, but I want to make sure. sure that we get in a good solid plug for the, um, the special that you've got coming up on Thursday. Sure, sure. So it's uh, it's uh, Mysteries of the Abandoned, Chernobyl's Deadly Secrets. It airs on the Discovery Science Channel, the Science Channel, at 9 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time. Um, you know, I... Uh, 
obviously in the States, I know what channels it's on and cable systems in Canada. I don't know if you guys will run it on the science channel or if they'll run it on their sister channel, one of the discovery channels. Um, but uh, I'm really excited about it. It's, it uh, it's taken a long time and I'm just thankful for both science channel and ping pong productions sort of believing in, in, in the story and in me. And, you know, I never thought, you know, my wildest dreams to let, or, uh, you know, five, seven years ago. Now, I guess it is that I started this, that I'd actually be in front of the camera. My goal is as, as, as a cinematographer, but, uh, they saw something in the way I presented, uh, the information and they put me in front of the camera as well. So I'm very, very excited. And I want to thank you for, for allowing me to come on today and, and to tell the story. And where can people get a hold of you and and follow up with you? I, I know that like uh, like myself, you're actively engaged on on social media. And again, I, I'm going to get a plug for, for the website exploringthezone.com uh, to get uh, you know some video samples of uh, of what Philip has done and and uh, some of the images. Look through these photo galleries. Uh, beautiful stuff. And, yeah, well, thank uh, thank yeah. you very much. Yep, you can catch me on Twitter. I started Instagram because my wife told me I needed to get involved there, so I've got my Instagram up and running. Facebook it's PGP Images Exploring the Zone as well on on uh, on uh, Facebook. Um, it's PGP Images on Twitter, Exploring the Zone website, and if I can ever get uh, some time, philipgrossman.com will go up uh, in the next week or two as well. Well, I, what can I tell you, Philip? This is uh, this has been a great interview. Um, you know, certainly best of luck with the uh, with the special that's uh, premiering on Thursday. I'm certainly going to look for it. And um, you know, if you ever want to come back and talk about this or any other projects, uh, that, you know, I'd be I'd be proud to have you back. All right. Certainly. Well, th thank you very much. I appreciate you giving me the the opportunity to chat. Okay, great. So that's going to about do it for us today. Uh, again, on behalf of my guest, uh, Philip Grossman, you've been listening to Casey Ryan on the cutting room floor. I'm going to be back next week with um, another CRF mainstay. Uh, Mike Beckemeyer is going to be here. Uh, lots of great shows lined up for uh, for September, so uh, you know, pay attention for that. And uh, until then, we'll talk to you guys next week. Cut, print, wrap, and I am done. That was another edition of The Cutting Room Floor with your host, Casey Ryan. Follow Casey on Twitter at Cutting Room MRB and on Facebook, The Cutting Room Floor. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.